One of those exciting moments where um, the person who we're expecting to read isn't here. So I think I'll read. Uh, But I'd encourage you to follow along as well. Psalm 110 is uh, our first reading. Uh, I think the page number's up there. It's also in front of me. 434. It's a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. Dean's going to bring us our second reading on short notice. Um, But it's a powerful word from Psalm 110, so take a moment as you turn over to reflect on it. It's a pleasure to uh, read God's word. So the second uh, reading is from Hebrews 4. Uh, starting at verse 14, and that's on page 848, and we're going to read to 5, verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, But God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, If you're a note-taking kind of person, there are uh, pads, there are uh, underneath the seat in front of you, there are pencils at the end of your seat. If you're a kind of question-comment person, 
um, you would have received there's a response slip uh, in your Bible. But more significant than both of those is be a person who has the Bible open uh, in that passage in Hebrews because that's what you want to be checking over and over again as I speak. Uh, exposure can hurt, can't it? I just ask US Senator, Senator Mark Sanford. Uh, if you missed the story in this week's news, uh, Mark Sanford is a conservative Republican senator. Uh, he stood for family, family values. He, uh, he was a gifted speaker. For the Republicans, he was seen as this kind of great hope to match Barack Obama's oratory. But in the past week, uh, rather than spending time clearing his head, uh, hiking in the Appalachians like he told everyone he was doing, uh, he was found with his mistress in Argentina. Uh, his dark secret, which was actually already known to his wife, has now been exposed to the world. So his exposure is kind of so complete that someone like me, who um, until this week I'd never even heard of him, I, I now only know of him as you know, the disgraced former presidential contender. Yeah, he's been exposed. Uh, his career is ruined. His family is shattered. Uh, he has four sons. Uh, his reputation is in tatters. Uh, he said these words. So the bottom line is this. I've been unfaithful to my wife. I heard a lot of different folks. All I can say is I apologise. But will that be enough? Will that be enough for the public? Because you know, once exposed, who's going to listen to him? In Matthew John's massively uncomfortable interview with Tracy Grimshaw after his you know, very public exposure, uh, he said this, I can only speak for myself, Tracy. It was seven years ago. Everybody's got something in their lives they regret and they'd love to rewind and take away. And that's mine. Yeah, his exposure costs him a media career and, and more. Because after that kind of public exposure, who's going to listen to him? And yet he's right, isn't he? We, we all have regrets. It's not just those ones. You, you and I have things in our life that, that would crush us if they were kind of splashed across the news pages. You know, you've thought thoughts and you've spoken words that, given the chance, you would love to wipe away. But you and I, we, we breathe easily uh, because we know we haven't been exposed. And yet it isn't hidden. For God, the one we have to give an account to has seen it all. Uh, even the bits that, that our own deceitful hearts have hidden from our own consciousness, God has seen. Every dark thought, every selfish action, every cruel word, you know, those, those bitter moments, the ones that are kind of flooding into your mind even now as I speak, the ones you remember with regret and with pain, they lay exposed before God. Uh, it's what the writer of Hebrews wrote just before where Dean picked up our reading. He wrote it in 4.12, it's what we looked at last week. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts, the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, we, we fear exposure. And the living word of God actually opens us up entirely. 
It's why last week we saw that the threat of missing God's rest is genuine, it's real. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. You know, we, we struggle to just see how deeply ingrained the sin is within us and yet God gazes upon it. Calvinists speak of um, us as people as being totally depraved. Um, they're not saying we're all as bad as we possibly could be, but, but that every part of our life is tainted by sin. Like Mark Sanford, like Matt Johns, before God, our sin is entirely exposed. You know, and, and who can help us out of that? And, we, and when we really come to grips with how serious and how deep our sin is, what right do we think we have to approach God? who's so pure that that not a trace of darkness can be found in him. And what right do we think we have to to go into his presence? You know, if the public won't listen to Sanford or John's, why would God listen to you or I? And yet here is the beauty of Hebrews for us this morning. We can approach God and we can do it confidently. 4 verse 16 Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can go and be heard. We can go to the throne of God. How can that be? Uh, In in jargon terms, it's because of the the priestly work of Christ. That's what Hebrews is talking about here. Um, Broken down into more our language, uh, we are heard because, first of all, Jesus listens to us and, second, because the Father listens to Jesus. The concept of priestly work we need to kind of get a grip on. It's essential to understanding acceptance before God. Uh, priests, you know, familiar to the people who first read Hebrews, uh, but it's not particularly normal for us. Uh, thankfully, chapter 5 outlines the essentials of what priests do. 5 verse 1. Uh, Every high priest is selected from among men and appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifice for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. And that's why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, so at heart, a priest is a middleman, a mediator between God and humanity. Uh, Priests, as I said, they're not a big part of our culture, though most cultures through history have had priests of some form or another. You know, cultures with a, with a strong sense of God being so much greater than us, you know, that he's not actually naturally accessible. Uh, most Australians, modern Australians, assume God is actually pretty approachable. He's probably a nice guy and, you know, I'm a nice guy and so we can get close, we could probably be friends. Uh, we don't need a representative, we think. You know, maybe it's the Protestant influence. Uh, where Christ's work means that we don't go through other people. We don't go to, you know, and through like a minister like me. You don't go through me to get to God. You know, maybe it's because we're egalitarian. You know, we, we, we'd struggle. You know, this is the Queen's private chapel. Should she ever come to visit and stay down the road? Uh, but should she turn up, I, you know, maybe we'd struggle a little to bow. We're not bowing kind of people. And, and maybe we don't see God as really that much higher. Maybe it's we just don't grip the gulf of sin. John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, a bestseller of a few centuries ago, 
It begins with uh, his dream, and he dreams of Christian, uh, the name of the man he dreams of, who is reading the Bible. And, and as Christian reads it, there's this, this massive burden becomes you know, it forms on his back, is placed on his back. It, what's going on is it's the awareness of his inner sin coming a physical weight on the outside. And he understands that weight as actually dragging him down into hell. You know, maybe if that was the kind of way we thought about our sin, we'd say, yeah, we really need a mediator. We need someone to stand between us and God. We need a priest. And Hebrews make clear that as a mediator between a righteous God and sinful people, a priest, first of all, needs to be able to hear us. He needs to listen to us. That's the kind of concept in verse 2, as well as the need for God to listen to him. So in 5.1, he's selected from among God's people to offer sacrifices, to make intercession, bring back God's blessing. And he can do that sympathetically, dealing gently in verse 2, because of his humanity. So he's neither harsh or indifferent to our struggles, because he shared in what it's like to struggle. But he's not sentimentally indulgent either. He's not just kind of going, oh yeah, whatever, it's okay. But at the same time, God has to be happy with him. He's got to be God's selection. Uh, in verse 4, you know, as the party trying to get back to God, we don't set up the conditions of who will go through. It's up to him to say, you will come this way. And yet in between those things, in between 2 and 4, there's verse 3, which points out the problem, the flaw in the system. Um, all the human priests, even Aaron's line, they actually needed still someone to represent them. They were sinful like you and me. And that's where we come to the wonder of the priestly work of Jesus. You know, he is the priest, the high priest that none other were. He operates in the heavenlies in 4.14 rather than on the copy on earth. Uh, 4.15, Jesus genuinely listens to us. 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus listens to you and I because he understands the struggles that we have in serving God. The fact that he was tempted in in every way and yet didn't sin, it it points out just how intense his temptation was. So how do most of us deal with temptation? How do you deal with temptation? Um, Generally, often, um, the easiest way to deal with it is just kind of caving in. So there's that kind of tempting slice of chocolate cake that was left over from the night before and and you see it there and well quite frankly the the longer you look at it the more tempting it becomes and the more tense it is and so what's the best way to deal with it well just just hoe into it quicker eat it the quicker the temptation's over now the longer we resist the harder it becomes and yet jesus resisted and resisted and resisted and did not sin and he knows the extremes of temptation Uh, And all the more, the fact that he had divine powers adds to it. So he could have called on um, a mighty force of angels to come and help him get whatever he wanted, more power, and yet still resist the temptation to use it selfishly. He knows those extremes. You know, he's been one-on-one in the devil in the wilderness. And so uh, he sympathises with us in 15, though sympathy underestimates the concept concept there. Um, His connection with us is deeper than that. It's not just a psychological thing, it's an existential thing. You know, he suffers with his people. 
because he himself has trod where we've trod. You know, you know the sorrow and the weariness and the hostility and, and the frustrations and the desires that, that we have that say, oh, I just want to do things my way, God. Well, he's been through all that too. And he's endured. He knows what it's like and so he listens. So that means for us in 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we might find mercy and, receive, and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, we can actually come exposed as we are to God's throne, the only place where grace is on offer, the place that is characterised by giving grace and it will be freely dispensed and we can go there confidently because of his great high priestly work because he listens to us. And that's going to reshape the way that we relate to God, isn't it? Now, two, two ways. One is we can actually be honest in naming our sin before God. So it's right, when we come to church, we we often uh, pray a general confession, uh, confessing our sins generally because we're doing it as a group. We're not going to go around the circle and name them one after one. But when we come as individuals, we've we've got a greater freedom than that. We can actually be really frank with God, completely frank. As a society, we would say that free speech is one of the things we value most highly. Uh, And yet in practice, we don't really like doing it. Have you noticed how so much of our speech is actually not free at all? Uh, So much of our speech is designed to blur communication. So someone invites you to dinner and um, you've had a busy week. You really feel like staying in that night. Sounds a bit insulting. So you kind of blur your communication as you answer them. You're not particularly free as you speak to them. Or or the boss asks you for an evaluation of his performance. And for all sorts of reasons, there's no way you're going to tell him what you really think. And so you blur that communication. You know, we value free speech, yet we don't want to do it because largely we, we want to protect ourselves. We, we want to remain hidden. Uh, we don't speak freely because we don't want to be exposed. What if people see the darkness within us? Yeah, what's going on? I suspect as we worry, if we were completely open with people, we'd actually find they would judge us, not extend mercy. And so we hide. And the end result is more and more distance in relationship. You know, that kind of self-defence actually hurts us in the end. Uh, Psalm 32 speaks of the joy of real free speech with God. Um, he speaks of, he, the psalm speaks of the blessed life of the one whose sins are covered over. Um, the guy who writes the psalm, David, speaks of the toll it took on him when he used to try and hide his sin from God, how, how kind of physically and emotionally it was taking a toll on him. And then he talks about the wonder of when he actually went and brought it before God and told him everything and the joy of knowing that forgiveness and being open with God again. It, that's the beauty of being able to approach the throne of grace because of Jesus. You know, you're, you're already exposed. You aren't telling God anything he doesn't already know. My father recounts a time uh, as a little boy where he spilt a vial of ink all over his mother's lounge. Yeah. Um, And so he decided to do the the brilliant cover-up of moving to go and play in the front yard Uh, because, hey, no way I'll be linked to the crime that way. Uh, And he was astounded when his mother came and asked him directly about it. You know, how could you know? You know, with a kind of four-year-old logic, uh, you know, didn't put together clues like his sister was already at school, there was ink all over his hands, you know. 
There was nowhere to run, and so you may as well just confess. Yeah, and there are times where we try and hide our reality from God, isn't it? And yet we're completely exposed. The ink's all over our hands. He sees it. He knows. And yet we try and hide it. But when the wonderful truth is we, we are exposed and can still find acceptance because of Christ. We can actually be frank and open and honest with God. You know, the things like you know, maybe the bitterness and resentment you try and hide from other people, you can bring to him. You can admit that at the throne of grace. You can bring specific incidents to him. Tell him all because he knows it all. And Christ, in verse 16, 416, he helps us in that time of need. When we come before God, we find mercy. We find our sins dealt with. It also means we should pray persistently. The sense of... Approaching in verse 16 is not a one-off. It's an over and over again thing. You know, we all fail. Uh, this side of heaven, you'll keep failing. Sorry to break it to you if you didn't realise, but you will. Uh, but Jesus will keep listening. And so keep going back and keep asking forgiveness. Seventh time, 77th time, he'll keep listening. He keeps offering grace and mercy. And know that it's effective. Uh, because just like Jesus listens to us, God the Father listens to Jesus. That's the other part of successful priestly work, isn't it? To be a good mediator, you've got to be able to work with both parties. Jesus does that. Uh, As I said in 4.14, Jesus operates in the heavenlies, not here on earth. He's, He's right there and he's accepted because of his perfect life of obedience, the way he always resisted temptation. So 5 verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him, and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Don't get distracted this week by Melchizedek. We'll meet him in a few weeks' time. Jesus was heard by his father because he asked with complete trust. That's the logic of verse 7. He was a son, and and I want you to remember in in biblical language, sonship is more about imitation, you know, like father, like son, and less about biology. But his sonship then had to be perfected. Perfected in the sense of completed. You know, I have a job that I've got to finish. I've got to perfect. It's not the sense of moral failing. Jesus didn't sin But he had a task he had to do. He had to demonstrate he was a faithful son by imitating his father even in hard times. He had to perfect that task. And so with cries and tears, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hours before he was going to be taken away and crucified, he prayed. He asked of his father. He knew he was about to suffer physically, but more than that, he knew he was about to be forsaken by his father because of your sins and my sins. And so he prayed. Uh, And if you recall the incident, he prayed about a few things. Um, He prayed, first of all, he wouldn't give in to temptation, the temptation to run or call on help or get out. Uh, He asked his disciples to do the same, but they wouldn't. He prayed that if it was possible, that the cup of God's wrath, the the cup of suffering would, would pass and he wouldn't have to take it. But deeper than that, he wanted to, He prayed, he did pray, for his father's will to be done. And he prayed for the glorification of his father, we, you know, anticipating that that would lead to his glory ultimately too. And what are we told in Hebrews? The father heard. 
And the father granted his request. And you might be thinking, yeah, but didn't he die? Yes, of course he did. But that was the only way to answer his request of resisting temptation, of doing the father's will, of bringing about the father's glory. It was that kind of obedience in hardship which makes him even now the one and only high priest who offers salvation for everyone who obeys. You know, you don't go to me, you don't go to other ministers, priests, you go to him. Jesus was heard because the essence of acceptable prayer is humility. So P.T. Forsyth spoke about prayerlessness as the root of all sin. Uh, what he meant is that to, to not pray is a sign of arrogance and independence and all other sins flow out of that. And as strange as it sounds, people can actually sin even as they pray. People can sin even as they pray. At the risk of nuancing and perhaps even disagreeing with our kids' talk a little this morning, uh, there are some prayers that's not acceptable and not heard, or at least not answered. Now, prayer that demands things of God, you know, Lord, you must heal me. Or prayer that bargains with him. Oh, Lord, you know, if you give me that job, I'll... You know, or prayer that, that tries to twist his arm. You know, Lord, if, if you don't bless me with a Christian partner, I'll... You know, anything self-seeking is, is not a prayer that can expect to be heard because it fails to understand what's going on. It fails to understand the nature of prayer, that it's dependent. It fails to respect the relationship with the one who gives generously. Yet it can't expect to be heard. But Jesus prays as a true son, not self-interested. He's heard because of his submissive obedience, even in hardship. So he makes requests, but his greatest desire is to please his father. And the, the beauty of Jesus' prayer life his centering on the glory of God means that you and, and me can come, even though we've been exposed, and approach him with confidence. Everybody has something in their lives they regret, that they'd love to rewind and take away. You do. I do. And standing before God, we're exposed. You know, he's seen it all. There's nowhere to hide from that gaze. Not a word, not a thought has escaped his notice. You have no right to be heard. And yet Jesus listens. And the Father listens to him. We have a great high priest. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Let's take a moment to do that quietly ourselves before I pray. Lord and Father, we come before you realising our own frailties and weakness. We bring before you the sin that we've committed intentionally, the sin we've committed accidentally, the sin we don't even realise we've done, that you've seen. And we thank you that through the work of Christ, his priestly work, that can be covered over. We thank you that we can come and find mercy when we most need it. We thank you for the fact that Jesus listens to us and that you listen to him. Amen.